How are we doing, Salt Company? I am so freaking glad to be back. You guys have no idea. For those of you that are back, welcome back. I know some of you came Sunday to our kickoff event. Anybody? Yep. Several people that were not at our Sunday kickoff event, so this is your kickoff event. There we go. Love it. You're catching on. Uh, yeah. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here with Salt Company, and you might be thinking, what the heck is Salt Company? I'm here to tell you. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, we are the college ministry of Veritas Church. You're here. Uh, we exist to make much of Jesus and to do it in deep community. I said it on Sunday. I'll say it again. We are not just a student club to participate in. We are a family to belong to. And so just being in this room, like, I want you to know you are family. Like, we want to treat you like family. Uh, we function as a family. And that inevitably cannot happen if you only show up on a Thursday night in a room of 100 plus students. Because the reality is, we can't really get to know you well in an hour-ish window one night a week. So we also do what we call connection groups. You're gonna have an opportunity to jump in a connection group. That's where we scatter throughout the week in smaller student-led uh, connection groups where you get to talk about life, the ups and the downs, uh, things that you enjoy, such as fantasy football. Anybody? Okay. Yeah. Uh, such as Target runs. Anybody? Yeah. yeah, that's what's up. I also love Target, okay? So connection group is where you get to do life with your peers. And I am here to tell you, if you only show up on a Thursday night, you're missing out on the majority of what we have to offer you as a part of Salt Company. One thing you probably don't know is that we are one of many salt companies that exist across the nation. We are a part of a network of churches called the Salt Network, where there are college campuses all across the United States that are saying, we want to reach the next generation. And tonight, tonight alone, there are 11 other salt companies that are gathering and having their first event. Three that are having their first, Ohio State University, Cincinnati University, and Atlanta okay, Georgia Tech. So this is a big deal. This is a global movement. We don't just meet nationally, we meet globally, but uh, you are a part of a bigger family just by being a part of this room. So we are going to dig in tonight. First, I figure it's just helpful to give you an intro to who I am, so I have pictures to help you. You'll love this. Okay, this is my wife, Ellie. She's stunning. Dudes, you missed out. <laughs> I got to her first. Uh, I don't think I'm that great of a guy. She is amazing. She's stunning. She's better than me at everything I've ever done. She's amazing. Okay, we've been married for four years. We have two little boys. This is uh, our oldest. I can't use his name because he's a foster child. Uh, he is almost two. And our youngest, yeah, you don't have to love me. You better love my baby, all right? <laughs> this is my little. Uh, he's also one of our foster kiddos, and he turns a year next month. Uh, we have had each of them for our oldest. We've had over a year. We've had almost a year. And uh, hold the next picture. Don't put the next picture up yet. Okay, here's the deal. I am a proud minivan dad, all right? I drive a Chrysler Town & Country with stow-and-go seating, and you can mock me all you want. Minivans rock. That's where it's at. But we also have a secondary vehicle. Put it up there. Yeah. <laughs> It's a freaking hot rod. It's called a moped, okay? It gets 103 miles per gallon, and you're probably thinking, wow, you're a total tool. 
Maybe, okay? I just figure if I look like I'm 16, I might as well act like I'm 16, you know? Um, but I haven't always owned a moped. That actually just started, uh, when was that? May? And I don't know how to make the long story short, so I'm just gonna tell you the longer story. Uh, I used to own a Hyundai Elantra, okay? Got about 35 miles per gallon, bought it six years ago. Thing was running smooth. Uh, we made it through our first winter together. Sounds like we're in a relationship. Uh, made it through our first winter together, and my Elantra started to make some noise. And by some noise, I mean that thing sounded awful. Like, I'd be driving down the road, it's like And Ellie is sitting on our front porch, and she's like, I knew you were coming from two blocks away. That thing sounds like a ticking time bomb. And I just figured, okay, something has to be wrong with it. So I take it into the shop. They can't find anything seriously wrong with it. They're like, yeah, sometimes Hyundai's just do this. They get noisy, but there's nothing wrong with it. You're fine. Uh, they change the oil. Life goes on as normal. Uh, I don't claim to know a ton about cars, but I do know that you're supposed to change the oil occasionally. And typically for me, it was always a little bit too late. So cars started acting funny this last year. I'm like, probably overdue for an oil change. So I take it in for an oil change, drop it off that morning, and by about one in the afternoon, my mechanic calls me. I pick up the phone, I'm like, what's up, Marty? And he goes, hey, uh, got bad news for you. What's up? He's like, I'm not gonna do an oil change for you. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I'll pay you 50 bucks, whatever it costs, right? He's like, he said, there's no point. Because if I change your oil, the reality is your engine still has metal shavings in it. <laughs> I was like, no way. My engine was shot. And so no matter how much oil he put in that engine, my car was screwed. And so I decided, you know what? I'll sell it to my mechanic for a couple grand and I'll get a moped that's brand spanking new and she's a beauty, right? I, I share this story for a reason. I think it's because it actually does relate to all of us in this room more than we think it might. And I'm not here to tell you you have to go sell your car and buy a moped. But I am here to tell you that we come to God with issues that we want him to fix. I don't know what issues you come before God and say, God, I want you to fix this. But when I think about one of the most pivotal moments of my life, I was standing before God and I was asking him two things. One, heal my dad of cancer, okay? My dad was diagnosed with cancer and I knew that he probably didn't have a good chance of living. And so I was like, God, I want you to heal my dad. And number two, as a result of going home and taking care of my family while my dad had cancer, I was fired from my internship at Iowa State. I was going to school to be a strength conditioning coach and I thought, this is the end. I'm going to be a strength conditioning coach at a university and this is it. And then I got fired for taking care of my family. And so one of my asks of God was like, fix this situation. Like provide more opportunities for me to pave the pathway for my future. And I came before God and those are my asks. So I don't know what you come in the room with. I don't know what you're trying to present before God. Maybe that's a restored relationship with a parent, a fixed relationship with an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend, uh, more intelligence so you can actually pass your classes this semester. I don't know. Maybe it's like, I want to be in better shape and you need to give me discipline and also a slimmer waistline wouldn't hurt. I don't know what issue you're trying to bring before God, but the reality is we all have them. And the bigger issue is 
we all are just like my old dumpy Elantra, okay? All of these problems that we want God to fix, that's like the oil change. Even if we get all this stuff that we're asking of God, we have an issue. We have a broken engine. And so maybe you're not thinking through like cars and mechanics, but think of it this way. You have cancer. We have cancer in this room, and here are your symptoms. You have fatigue, you have weight change, and you have headaches and lingering pain. So are you just gonna go drink an extra Red Bull, pop a couple ibuprofen, see a chiropractor, go on a diet? Like, is that gonna fix your cancer? Anybody, does that fix your cancer? No. It treats the symptoms, but the reality is you still have this underlying disease. And so when we come in this room and we have all of these wants that we're bringing before God, it's not bad to be in want, but the, the bigger reality is we have a deeper need than we realize. So as we open up the Bible tonight, this is something we do every week, I want us to answer the question, what is our greatest need? If it's not getting better grades, making more money, having a comfortable future with our beach house, what is it? And how does God actually intervene? What does he actually do to meet our greatest needs? So we're going to be in Mark 2. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, that's totally cool. You can use a table of contents. There's no shame in that. There's several people in this room that will be doing that. Mark 2, it's in the New Testament. It's the second book. And it's written by a guy named... Mark. Great. Someone said John. John Mark. Congratulations, biblical scholar. You get a token. Um, it's written by a guy named Mark, and what he's doing is he's recording a life account of Jesus, actually first experienced through Peter, and Mark is writing down everything that Peter has experienced to record what he has seen Jesus do. And when we get to Mark 2, Jesus has done many things. Uh, first off, he has been born, he is alive, he has called his disciples, and he's been performing miracles, primarily that of healing. Right before this, he heals a man with leprosy, which is a skin disease, and he was considered to be a complete outcast. And Jesus does something pretty unique. He heals this man and he says, go and don't tell anybody. But what does the guy do instead? He goes and tells everybody. Like, Jesus healed me, look at me. And that's where we get to in Mark 2. So I'm going to start in verse 1. You can follow along in the screen as well. It says, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. All right, we're presented with the problem. This dude is paralyzed, right? He's paralyzed, and his friends can't just like walk through the front door and see Jesus because word has spread and crowds have filled this room. And don't think of an American house today. This is a small Palestinian house, one room, thatched roof, probably 50 people max capacity, but it's max capacity. And these dudes have a big issue. Their friend is paralyzed. And they're like, man, we know if there's any hope 
for our friend. We need to get him to Jesus. So what do they do? They climb up on the roof and they start just tearing it apart. They're just desperate to get to Jesus. And what you probably don't understand here is this paralytic, there's a lot going on in this dude's life. Just think about it. You're, you're paralyzed, you have been paralyzed for some time. What do you think is going on in your head? I guarantee you, this guy felt so worthless. He lacked any purpose in life. He couldn't contribute to society. He couldn't do anything himself. And one of the biggest deals in their day is he couldn't even go in the temple. He wasn't even welcome in a place that God would inhabit because he was considered to not be physically whole. This dude's a complete outcast. He has no hope and no help, but praise God, he has four faithful friends. And these friends don't just climb up on the roof. They start literally tearing it up, okay? The actual verbiage here is that they unroofed the roof. And if you say roof, you're wrong, okay? They unroofed the roof. They forcefully broke it up. Can you imagine this? Some of you are probably like, yeah, I felt like my friends forced me to come here tonight. Yep, probably. Um, no, but think about it. You're in this house, you're hearing Jesus teach, and all of a sudden you hear the, the thump, thump, thump on the roof, and you're like, what the heck? Dirt starts falling. And before you know it, dirt is like collapsing all around you. The sun breaks through, and down comes this paralyzed man on a thick mat with ropes. Just think about the expressions on people's faces here. Like, place yourself in the story. What do you think the, the friends looked like? You think they were just like, like the paralytic? I have no idea. He was probably wondering, what the heck are you guys doing? People inside the house, they were probably startled. Jesus, I don't know. But this was crazy. This was a crazy experience. And if you just place yourself in the story, you have to begin to think, what is actually happening here? What happens next? Read with me, verse five. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, referring to the four friends and the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus perceiving in a spirit that they questioned this within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Okay. What? Like, if you are these friends, and you're dropping your paralyzed friend through the roof in front of Jesus, and he looks at this man who is clearly paralyzed, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Does that work for you? I don't know about for you. For me, it wouldn't. I'd be like, okay, cute. Uh, what are you going to do about the paralytic? Like, he's still paralyzed, right? Jesus didn't give these men what they came to him for. No, he says, your sins are forgiven. And we don't get an inside look as to what the friends are thinking or even what the paralytic is thinking, but we do know what the religious leaders are thinking. And they're saying, how can this man say this? 
how can this man say that this, this guy's sins are forgiven because only God can forgive sins? Got to kind of admit, they're right. But they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which is essentially speaking in any such way that defames or defiles God. So they're trying to say, you must not know God if you're going to say that you can forgive sins. And Jesus responds, he says, what's easier to say? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? Okay, this is interesting. I found this out as I studied it. Think about it. What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? The reality is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if I walked up to you and I said, your sins are forgiven, does there need to be visible evidence of that? No, there doesn't have to be. Because I can just say that and you can be like, okay, that was weird, I don't know if it happened or not. But if I say to you, pick up your mat and walk, and you're paralyzed, there has to be visible evidence. It's actually harder to say, pick up your mat and walk, but the bigger issue is, it's harder to accomplish the forgiveness of sins because only God can do that. It might be easier to say your sins are forgiven, but it's much harder to actually do that. And the reality is, in this day, Jesus was not the only faith healer. There were witch doctors. There were people that practiced very advanced medicine in that day that were performing healing. And so the idea of physical healing was even not out of the question in their culture. But the idea of forgiveness of sins was. And so that's what we see. And what happens next is incredibly wild. Read with me in verse 10. It says, But that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus speaks to the paralytic, and he tells him, go walk. Like, get out here. Get out here. You can walk now. And this man, in an act of faith, responds to Jesus. He picks up his mat, and he walks. Just imagine yourself the paralytic, probably spending the majority of his life unable to help himself, and Jesus speaks a word and says, stand up. And he does, and he gets to move for the first time. He's no longer hopeless, he's no longer helpless, and beyond that, because Jesus performs this visible miracle for the man, he authenticates the fact that he has the power to do the invisible miracle, which is the healing of sin. I don't know if you're picking up what's going on here, but going all the way back to the beginning, whether that's me coming before God and saying, God, I want you to heal my dad of cancer, or you coming before God and saying, God, I want you to give me a relationship. I want you to give me my future career path. I want you to help me have less stress and to do better in school or to restore a relationship with a parent that treated me wrongly or that I damaged their trust. I need you to restore all of this. And Jesus is here to say, I have 
better healing to offer you. And your issue is much bigger than you realize. Because it's not just the fact that you need more money, need more intelligence, need healthier relationships. No, the reality is, you have sin in your life. I do too. It's crazy to me that Jesus here, who has lived this perfect life, is accused of blasphemy in speaking against God. The bigger issue is that everybody in this room is a blasphemer. We have all defiled God. We have all spoken against him. We have all defamed him in either thought or word or action or motivation. We are the blasphemers. And the crazy thing about blasphemy in this day is that your sentence for blasphemy is death. Our sentence for blasphemy is death. So if we're sinners and our right punishment is death, what does Jesus do? He speaks here about the forgiveness of sins. And a lot of people love this idea of, yes, Jesus forgives my sins. I'm gonna go out and party for the weekend. I'm gonna do what I want, and then I'm gonna run back to Jesus' feet and say, I'm sorry, do you forgive me? Jesus' forgiveness is not cheap, okay? Jesus' forgiveness is costly. Because in order for Jesus to actually forgive you of your sin, here's what he had to do. He had to take on the charge of being a blasphemer, which he did. He was wrongly accused. The religious leaders of the day said, you're a blasphemer. And rather than him just shaking it off, no, he said, I'll die your death. I'll go to the cross for you because sin requires justice, okay? Before a holy and perfect God, there is no cheap grace. He says, I require death. I require sacrifice. And so Jesus steps in to your place. He joyfully embraces the cross. And three days later, he rises from the dead and appears to hundreds and thousands. There's historical reliability to this person work of Jesus Christ who hung crucified on a tree and rose from the dead. And that's not for nothing, okay? He did this to restore your relationship to God. The greatest healing that he has to offer you is not just a restored relationship with a parent or your dream future with a beach house, some hottie, and a labradoodle puppy, right? Everybody would love that, I'm sure. No, Jesus said, I have come to make you whole. I've come to restore your relationship to God. There's this saying here um, from a theologian, he said, forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets our greatest need that we have been separated from a holy God. It costs the greatest price for Jesus, the Son of God, to come and live and die in your place. And it brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. And I read a quote two days ago that says this. It's gonna be up on the screen. I asked for everything so that I could enjoy life. Instead, God gave me life so I can enjoy everything. That's profound. I asked for all these things. I came before God with all my problems and I said, God, will you just meet these? And he says, yes, I will. But it looks different than you might think. I'm gonna die in your place. I'm gonna rise again so that if you would simply, like the paralytic, respond in faith and step up and walk, he says, you have a right relationship with me. 
we're not promised earthly comfort. We're actually promised quite the opposite. If Jesus is our king and he himself was crucified, we are not promised a comfortable future. We're actually not promised that he would meet all of our earthly needs. He has come to satisfy our deepest desire, which is to be known by God and loved by God, and that he would invite us into knowing and loving him. He has done that. And so when I think about my own story, going back to 2013, I'm sitting there pleading with God to heal my dad of cancer. Guess what? My dad died. In 2016, my dad passed away, but he went to be with Jesus. Was my dad healed? Yeah. He's in heaven now. He's restored. Did it look a lot different than what I asked for? You better believe it. Looked a lot different. I watched my dad suffer for nine months on hospice. And all throughout that time, clinging to Jesus, reading his Bible, and rejoicing in the midst of extreme suffering. He had all that he needed in Christ. And when I think about this internship that got ruined and my future career path destroyed, did God meet that need? Absolutely. Guess what? I work in ministry now. (laughs) What the heck? This dude who was far off from God and wanted nothing to do with him, and I said, God, will you just provide a way for me? He said, sure, I'll use you for my kingdom. Even though you're a total screw up, even though you are hopeless and helpless, just like the paralytic, I'm going to die in your place, and I'm going to be your hope, and I'm going to be your help, and you're going to get the opportunity to talk to other people about Jesus. And that's why I'm here. And this end result here in this passage is that everybody looks at what has just happened and they say, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And what do they do? They glorify God. They glorify God because of what has happened in their midst. And so there's actually really three simple responses for us tonight. The ABCs, we're gonna make it cute, all right? A, accept the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for you. Straight up, it is a free gift for you. That doesn't mean it was free, it was costly to God. He sent his only son to die, but for you, to you, for you to accept this forgiveness that Jesus has offered, you have to say, Jesus, I trust in you alone. My way to have a relationship with God is not in my ability to measure up, but in Jesus' ability to measure up for me, and that's already done. Believe that, accept that. And with accepting that, there is this call to repent, which means I'm going to turn from a selfish way of living and I'm gonna let Jesus tell me how to live my life. If he loved me enough to lay his life down for me and he's gonna be my savior, he also is going to be my Lord because he loves me more than I love myself and he loves me more than anybody here on this earth knows how to love me. So his direction is good for my life. Accept the forgiveness that Jesus has to offer you. Second, be the faithful friend. Do not let other things get in the way of bringing your friends to Jesus. Do not let their their intellectual concerns get in the way. Do not let silly events like a Kirkwood hypnotist get in the way of bringing your friends to Jesus. Faithfully pursue them. Faithfully pray for them. Faithfully annoy them. Straight up, that's the only reason I ended up in a church. Because I had a friend who just week after week after week, and I know that she was praying for me, would say, you should come to church with me. Hey, you should come to this Wednesday night worship gathering. Hey, you should come to this prayer night. And finally, I was at wit's end. I just said, what, what do I have to lose? 
I'll go to this event, and if nothing else, I'll get you off my back. And that's where I met Jesus. Straight up. Be the faithful friend. Unroof the roof. Get your friends in a context that they can hear the gospel and respond. And the last is celebrate God's faithfulness. As you embrace this good news for yourself, as you see Jesus change your life, the reality is the blessing was not meant to stop with you, okay? The blessing is meant to pass through you. Jesus invites you into this mission that he has to say, I'm going to turn this world upside down for the glory of God. And when people came to interact with me, in just a week, they said, wait a second, wasn't this the guy that was getting drunk, dropping F-bombs, and talking filthy about women like a week ago? What has happened? And all I could say was, you have to come meet this Jesus. I could not explain it. And this is not a humble brag. This is me just being honest, okay? God wants to use average, ordinary people with broken past to make much of his power. He wants to use your story. He wants to redeem the broken parts of your story so that as you go out into a world, people can relate to you. And people can say, wow, you serve a great God. Because there's nothing special about Jordan Howell, okay? There's nothing special about me other than the fact that I have been changed by the God of the universe. And that's amazing. And so when people get to interact with me, they don't see some hyper-intellectual, morally perfect dude. They see a hungry person who has been fed out of the overflow of God's abundance and I am just a beggar pointing other people to the bread to say, I need Jesus just like you, and guess what? He has satisfied my soul, and I trust that he will satisfy yours too. And so that's really the vision of what we're about. Who are you in this story? Are you the paralytic? Are you hopeless and helpless? Put your faith in Jesus. Are you the faithful friend? Who are you bringing into the room? Are you the crowd? that even in the next two minutes, we just get to stop. The world is just put on pause for 15 minutes as we just get to celebrate God's faithfulness to us. Seriously, you have not been faithful unto God. Neither have I. He has been faithful unto you. That's what we get to celebrate. And as we do that together, you guys, I trust that the good news of Jesus Christ is way too good to just stay in this room. It's way too good to keep to yourself. If we can go and we can share other news that is far less good, whether that be a sports update, something about your class, something in politics, a funny meme, love memes, okay? If you can go and share that quickly, how much quicker can you go and share the good news of Jesus Christ coming to save and satisfy your soul? I want Salt Company to be about that. And not for the name of us, okay? If nobody knows the name of Salt Company, I love that. I wanna fly under the radar. I don't want people to think anything of Salt Company other than the fact that they serve a great God. Salt Company does not change lives. Jesus changes lives. Are you guys with me on that? Salt Company does not change lives. So whether you've been around for a little bit or you've been around a long time, I better never run into you and hear Salt Company changed my life because we didn't. Jesus did and Jesus will change your life if you come around and you stick around him and you cling to him tightly. He will change your life 
And I can say that with confidence because he's changed mine. Amen? Let's pray. God, you work in mysterious ways. And I don't always claim to understand how you work. I don't even always claim to like how you work. Um, I get frustrated with you frequently. You know that. But um, the best news in the world, God, is that you know my heart, and yet you still love me, and you still move towards me. And, um, yeah, you know better than I do. You know what I need more than I do. And you meet my greatest need than anything in this world ever could. So in this story, we see a man asking to be healed of his paralysis, and yet you forgive his sins. In 2013, you saw Jordan Howell asking for his dad to be healed of cancer. And yet you forgave my sins. It didn't make sense to me, but God, I wasn't complaining. (laughs) I found myself weeping, not tears of sadness, but tears of joy as I was finally able to understand that you are for me and not against me, that you saw my broken past and yet you still moved towards me, Jesus, on the cross, that you would die the death that I deserved and that you would rise again to make me at one with you. And so I pray for every person in this room tonight, no matter what needs, what burdens they bring, what frustrations they have with you, God, I pray that you would meet them where they're at. You would satisfy their soul, that you would say, your sins are forgiven. And that they would, in faith, respond, that they would pick up their mat and they would walk with you, Jesus, all the days of their life. Because you are worthy. You are worth it. You are not just Savior, but Lord. And we need your help, God. So move towards us. Help us to celebrate your faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to you, but your faithfulness to us now as we just sing songs of praise to worship your name. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name.